0: Good job, boys and girls, and now this week an expanded version of Children's Church. So K-2 through two is our normal group is heading out, but also 3rd through 6th grade this week, special Children's Church you are welcome and invited to go to as well. So as our younger ones leave this week, those of you that are used to four boxes do not have Four boxes this week. If you really need it, it is all interpret on your own. You can draw your own four boxes and just take your own notes as you want to. Um, Next Sunday, let me remind you as parents, there is no children's church next Sunday. Chaplain Corey Reader is going to be preaching next Sunday, so he'll be engaging with our younger learners throughout the service. Parents, if you need to bring some extra snacks or whatever you need to do uh, next Sunday, You're welcome to do that with No Children's Church as a reminder for next week. We've reached the end of our summer sermon series on the book of Judges. I was looking forward to preaching through Judges. I'd wanted to do so for some time. And I knew going into the study, because all of the Bible has something to do with God's grace and amazes us about God, I knew that that was going to happen. But what has surprised me most in the series has been the vividness of God's grace. I knew it would be there intellectually, but I did not anticipate it to be as strong and vivid and bright as it is in the dark and gloomy nature of the book of Judges. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 19. It's going to be on page 257 if you're using the Pew Bible, and if you're a guest with us Or if you don't have a Bible at home in a translation, you can read and understand. Keep that Pew Bible if it's something that works for you and you can easily understand. In Judges 19, we're going to look at a land to some degree far away in another time, but also in another sense, a land much like ours. With a nod to Star Wars a long time ago in a land far away, it's a period of civil war. There are rebel judges striking from hidden locations that have won battles against the evil oppressive empire. In the book of Judges, rebel judges fail to avoid the secret plans of the empire's ultimate weapon, sinfulness. A force with enough power to destroy the entire nation. A Levite from the remote parts of the land shows us the direction of the nation in this epic battle in Judges 19 through 21. Will he save the people and restore freedom to the galaxy? Others have tried and failed. Maybe this is the one. Judges 19, 1 through 4. Follow along. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Spoiler alert, this young man is not going to use the force very well. He is not going to deliver the people. He is going to fall prey to that great darkness that has invaded the land by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges. A few things I want to point out, and then I'm going to do a lot of summarizing today. One, we have a long text, but two, I'm going to summarize a lot of material for us. You're welcome to read on your own beginning of this chapter reminds us when there was no king in Israel. It's a phrase that points out the lack of spiritual leadership in the land, that looks forward to hopefully a king that would lead them well. And if you've read through the Bible a number of times, you may recall that some of the kings were good kings, at least temporarily, but others were terrible. As they end this period in the book of Judges, they're hoping that someone would come along and lead them well in the ways of the Lord because they are not walking in the ways of the Lord here at the end of the book of Judges. Along comes a Levite, one from the priestly tribe, And if we weren't remembering what happened last week with a uh, Levite, maybe we would have some hope. This is the one. This guy's going to step in. He's going to lead the people well. But even if you're not remembering last week, it doesn't take long to recognize this is probably not the guy because the first thing that we find of him is that he takes to himself a concubine. Okay, what is a biblical concubine? Well, it's like a lower-class wife, somewhere between a lower-class wife that didn't have all the rights of a wife and a sex slave. That's where he's at. That's what he's doing. This isn't honoring to her. This isn't a man honoring God by treating women well, and then things are not going well in their relationship. Duh. Okay, verse 2, things don't go well in their relationship. By the way, the text talks about her being unfaithful to him, and mine's even got a a footnote on there. There's some ambiguity in the Hebrew text and what's actually going on and what they're arguing about. It's very clear that things are not well in their relationship, that there's an argument, she flees, and it's unclear. There's three primary options for what's happening here. Possibly, option A, she's been sexually unfaithful to him. But if her dad knew this it would not be highly likely for him to receive her back in good standing if he had known this of her. So it's possible that that's the case. It's possible that they had had an argument. The language means literally, in some senses, that they were angry. She was angry with him. Now, is she angry with him because she's not satisfied of being a concubine rather than being treated as a wife and honored and respected? Has he been abusive? It's unclear what their argument could have been about. If he was abusing her, then her father shouldn't have been so happy to see the guy come back onto the stage and enter. So it's unclear still what's happening. There's not a good answer there. Option C. This is a minority option, but I think actually one of the commentators really does a good job arguing that it's likely the case that he did not simply take her for his own pleasure but he was selling her and trafficking her selling her regularly to other men and she got angry about that for good reason but again why would the dad be so eager to see the guy come back onto the scene there are no good answers in a broken world so one of my mentors has said so regularly sin will make you stupid And it has done so for at least one or two of the people in this story. And the whole story has a series of actions that do not make any sense except to the people doing what is right in their own eyes. From an outside perspective, examining it, it is broken and bad actions, and no one thinking rightly and well would be living this way. But they are not thinking rightly and well. They are blinded by sin, patterning themselves after their broken culture and doing what is right in only the eyes of those in their culture and not the eyes of the Lord. If I'm pressed on this, I think it's likely that he is treating her as property, selling her to others. If that's not the case, then I think that she has likely been unfaithful to him from option A. But either way, she is treated as property. After a time period, he shows up to speak kindly to her. All right, we don't have our boys and girls in the room for me to ask the question, what did Samson show up with to speak kindly to his original wife with when he brought a young goat? Okay, instead of flowers and chocolate, a young goat. It's unclear if he actually showed up with a young goat or not, but he shows up to speak kindly to her. But by the way, what the story doesn't tell us actually tells us a lot. It doesn't record their interaction doesn't record their dialogue. Instead, it records him and dad dialoguing, father-in-law and him. And what happens? He shows up, and there's a drinking party for several days. She was simply property in the eyes of both of them. She's never spoken to and never speaks. She gets treated as property. Unlike at the beginning of the book, when Caleb treats his daughter well, things have unraveled by the end of the book. They've been pulling on the thread, and now the clothes have fallen apart. It has all come unraveled. Women are viewed as property to be used in a land far away at a time long ago that is much like our culture. You can read the rest of chapter 19 later on your own, but I'm going to summarize for us. The Levite departs with the woman, his woman, his property, he thinks. And as darkness nears, they approach a city, but they decide it would be too dangerous to stay in that pagan city. So they move on to another city, the city of Gibeah in Benjaminite territory, and they stay there. They enter the town square, and no locals receive them and practice hospitality. But another guy from Ephraim takes them in, And he takes them in for another drinking party, and he issues some ominous words about it being bad for them to spend the night in the city square. In the midst of their drinking party, a mob shows up from the city. It beats on his door and demands that the Levite man, the priest, the Levite, sorry, be sent out for them to abuse. And for those familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this looks exactly like it at the beginning because these men turn and offer, this host offers his own daughter, the Levite sends out his concubine, and the mob leaves them alone. The only one sent out in the story is actually the concubine. The mob leaves them alone for those in the house to rest peacefully as they do their worst all night. After a good night's rest, the Levite wakes up as if nothing happens, gets ready to return home, only to find the woman dead outside the door of his home. And for the first and only time, he speaks to her and says, get up, but gets no answer. He gets mad because he has lost his property to do with what he pleased. He's not sad. He's just mad. He sends a graphic message to the entire nation to gather together and to take vengeance against the people of Gibeah. Enter chapter 20. Follow along with me in chapter 20 for a moment. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? They do call it evil here. Okay? They call what the, the Gibeonites or Gibeites had done, the residents of Gibeah had done, evil. The people of Benjamin, who were from that tribe, are even there present. Okay, the rest of the leaders got the vivid message that he had sent via the postal service. They were horrified. They gather up troops, 400,000 of those troops, and we see them assembled in a unified manner. It's quite ironic, by the way, that they are unified now. After the last few weeks when we've seen the nation fighting itself, they're now unified together. But they don't seek God's counsel there's some casual mention of God, but they don't seek God's counsel like they did at the beginning of the book because it's all unraveled by now. What began as a small threat of disobedience has led to drastic consequences for the nation and their relationship with God. The rest of chapter 20, I'm going to summarize for us. The people talk with the tribal leaders of Benjamin about the city of Gibeah. But instead of the people of Benjamin calling it evil, they sighed with their own tribe. Tribal loyalty then was a lot like ethnic pride, nationalism, or political loyalty today, with many people refusing to call something evil if it comes from a group they associate with. Because they were like them, they stood with them, refusing to call wrong, wrong. A massive battle ensues over multiple days with the nation united against the tribe of Benjamin. The nation asks God's directions for war, but things don't go so swell. And on the third attack, the nation overwhelms the Benjamites and the people of Gibeah. And as they do so, they utterly wipe out the city, leaving just 600 men with no women and children in the whole tribe. By the way, they come much closer to wiping out their own tribe than wiping out the people that God had commanded them to wipe out. They were much better at doing the things God had not told them to do than what he had told them to do. We end chapter 20 with 600 men of Benjamin hiding in caves. Enter chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mitzpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has is this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of the tribes of Israel did not come up? in the assembly to the Lord. For they had taken a great oath concerning him, who did not come up to the Lord, to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. The people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we've sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? Okay, so some time has passed, their anger has calmed, and they look around and they grieve that a tribe has been nearly wiped out. So they gather before God, they go through the right motions, they complain to God, don't really seek God's wisdom or receive God's wisdom, by the way, but they went through some of the religious motions of offering sacrifices. They brought their tithe to the Lord, they did all these things, but they don't really seek God's wisdom or get God's wisdom, they just whine to Him, and they come up with a creative solution. It's a solution that they see is right in their eyes. And the solution in the following verses for their rash promise is going to be quite unusual. Okay, remember they had made a rash promise repeating some of the things like Jephthah had done, saying, hey, after we conquer these people, nobody can give their wives to them. And anybody that doesn't show up, by the way, is going to like be put to death. And then they inquire and they realize oh, we've got a convenient solution. There was this one village where the men didn't show up and join us for battle. So here's their solution. We're going to send warriors. We're going to conquer that village, eliminate all of the people except for the eligible young ladies. And we're going to steal 400 young ladies from that village. So that's what they did. And they're right in their own eyes Solution to the problem. They raid a village, eliminate a bunch of other Israelites, they steal 400 women, but there's a problem here, and the math problem is 600 men, 400 women. So that brings us to verse 19. They have to have more of a solution. So they said, Behold, there's this yearly feast of the Lord. Capitalized there, concept of Yahweh at Shiloh, which, by the way, like seems to be not a feast authorized by the Lord. This is a semi-pagan religious ritual under the name of God, worshiping God, not in the right ways, most likely. It's north of Bethel. On the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And some of you are like, man, I've heard directions like this before. I don't know where I'm going. That's fine. They commanded, they do, they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go, lie in ambush in the vineyards. And then as they were to continue, go lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say them, grant them graciously to us. We did not take them for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give to them or else you would now be guilty. Okay, so see the, see the logic here. You promised that you would not give your daughters to the other tribe. So we just took them. And that's okay. Okay, bad solution here, verse 23, the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off and they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. Okay. There's a pagan or semi-pagan festival near Shiloh. They tell the Benjaminites, whenever a woman comes out to dance, go abduct her and we'll authorize it and tell the dads to be okay with it because they didn't break their vows. What stupid solutions. Like sin has wrecked their thinking. This is a terrible idea. But it's right in their own eyes. What debauchery here at the end of the book? I'm going to make some application, and then I'm going to look at the final two verses. First application that hopefully would go without being said, but still absolutely, unfortunately, needs to be said. People are not property. The dignity and value of individuals means that people are not property. Created in the image of God, male and female, young and old. Created in the image of God with equal value, dignity, and worth. All people. So this means that those with great handicaps, whether early in life, throughout life or late in life are not property for you to do with as you choose. This means that men and women are not property for us to do with as we choose. People are not property. Reading through these last three chapters is horrific. It should cause a reaction in your gut as you read them. From the beginning of chapter 19, this man has not married and loved this woman. Instead, he's made him his property whether as a concubine or whether for him to sell to others. He has treated her as his property. And then he wants revenge upon the people when his property is taken. So the way that revenge is occurring and the way that the chapters unfold is when he gets mad because his property was taken, they take the property of 600 other women. Sorry, 600 other women are taken as property. All right. It should be obvious, but has not always been obvious for Christians. All people are created in the image of God and not property of others. Therefore, slavery is wrong and owning people is wrong. Now, for a slightly more nuanced version of this, sexual slavery is certainly wrong and horrific. What was being done to this woman in chapter 19 at the hands of the men of that village should never be done. But it happens today And some of you have watched a movie recently and in the theaters that details the work of people trying to fight against trafficking. And I hope and pray that we live in a world where trafficking is unthinkable, doesn't just cause a gut reaction, but doesn't even occur. But I want to make a specific point of application for us all. If you don't want women and children and young boys and men to be trafficked, one of the best ways to support that is not simply by watching a movie and making a donation but by avoiding pornography. Because though some are in that industry, possibly of their own volition, many are in that industry because of similar trafficking types of situations and feel stuck as property. Put practical steps in your life to avoid the grip of pornography. Parents, have a conversation with your teenagers, wives and husbands together together. People are not property for you to view lustfully, for your own whims and desires, whether they put themselves in that situation voluntarily or not. They are not property for you to think about things that you should not be thinking about. God designed sexuality to be expressed only inside marriage where people love each other sacrificially and serve each other. And when you look at someone else lustfully, you are viewing them as property, not for their good, but for your own selfish purposes. Not only offensive to God in lust, but treating them as property directly or indirectly supports trafficking of people. Number two, Males need to pursue God and his ways. Okay, ladies, you also do as well. But in this text, as the men went, so went the society. So for a minute, as a guy, I'm going to talk to the guys. Okay, ladies, please don't elbow your husband at this point. It probably will not be a good idea. Okay, I know some of you want to do that. Others of you, no, listen, guys in the room. My intention in this next 60 seconds is not to beat you up, but to challenge you to walk with the Lord. Churches typically have more men or less men present than women. And I am so thankful for those of you ladies that show up, that serve, that do so much. Okay, my talking to the guys right now is not a lack of appreciation for you. Men don't just be content to lead your family financially serve them in the Lord, and lead your family spiritually. You give an account to the Lord, not for just putting bread on the table, but leading your family spiritually. Serve the church as God allows. As the men went, so went the culture, in the same way so many cases today. Men watching online even today, thank you for being present to watch online, to devote this time. Guys in the room, to devote this time to the Lord. I want to encourage you, don't fall into the lie that spiritual stuff is for women. Love the Lord. Love your family. Love your church. Pursue the Lord spiritually. Pursue the Lord practically. God holds you accountable for this. And I want to remind you of this challenge you to step into the situation that God has called you to boldly. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong stand firm in the faith and how you walk with the lord pursue god in his ways church is not just for women let's be men pursuing the lord sacrifice and serving the spiritual good of our families and in the church thirdly parenting matters okay just a brief point we've already covered the purity angle but I want to remind you of how this dad at a minimum sold his daughter to be a concubine at a minimum he didn't have the spiritual strength and personal resolve and concern for her to be her, put her in the right type of situation he went along with the ways of culture selling his daughter out to the gods and patterns of culture letting her fall prey to the idols of the world and letting her be acted on in ways that was not honoring and good for her. Parents, do not fall prey to the gods of culture and the ways of culture, letting your children fall prey to the idols of the world, acting upon useful desires, whether to be pursued Pursuing a life of lust or pursuing a life of approval by others. Point them to the Lord and care more about their relationship with the Lord than you do their academic or athletic success. Fourthly, religious hypocrites and tribal identity are not new. They still exist. They've existed for a long time. They existed then. The Levite from the priestly tribe was sinful. Last week's Levite was a religious sham who sold himself to the highest bidder and would say whatever you want as long as the price was right. So also religious leaders since that time have been guilty at times of being hypocrites and letting people down. I want to be very clear for those of you watching online whether this is the only sermon you ever hear or whether you watch every Sunday or present almost every Sunday. I pray that nobody on our church staff or another church staff that you know closely and well ever fails horrifically. But if they do, let me remind you that your hope and worship should not have been of a person, but of the Lord in the first place. Only God is perfect. So that means if you see something wrong or sense something wrong in a religious institution, including in our church, do not assume that all is well and that it cannot be wrong. See, if you see something, say something in the church. We make our best effort to put in good policies and procedures, to review how we keep our people safe in the building physically, how we keep our young ones safe and to be taken care of and treasured. And I do not want you to have to doubt And have concerns on those if you want to know how we try to make efforts to do that how we're doing background checks and all of those things keeping multiple people around by all means talk to me talk to another one of our pastors one of our board of directors as they look over those policies and procedures but unfortunately Broken people have done broken things and brought great harm. And some of you in this room have been greatly impacted by somebody who was supposed to represent Jesus doing things that Jesus would never have them to do. I'm sorry for that. I can't undo that. I can't undo the harm. All I can do is point you to the one who never disappoints. I want to remind you religious hypocrites are nothing new and neither is tribal identity don't simply parrot the line that the people of benjamin did it's my group so they can't be wrong when your party group or crowd does something wrong admit it hey you don't cease to be american when you say that americans have done things wrong You don't cease being a Democrat or Republican to call the wrongs of others and your preferred party wrong. Do not stand with them in their wrong. Do not do as the Benjamites did and hold on to tribal identity at the expense of calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. Fifthly, apart from repentance and grace, God's God's grace, apart from those things, sends spirals utterly out of control. Judges began, we began this series about seven or eight weeks ago, looking in chapter one about how the people of Judah listened to God almost perfectly. They just needed a little extra insurance as they followed God. And then for the last 21 chapters, it has all spiraled out of control. Even in chapter 19, it's one man with one group doing things wrong. And by the end of this, it's two different occasions. The trafficking of 600 women, mass executions of innocence, apart from God's grace, sin spirals out of control, spreads worse than any cancer ever does. How much cancer are you okay with in your body? How much sin are you okay with? You don't control your sin more than you control the cancer that spreads. Sin spirals out of control, but by God's grace. Don't play with it. You think you control it, and in reality, it controls you. It's a pretty dismal and ominous place in verse 23. In fact, I'm going to read verses 23, 24, and 25 for us as we end. The people of Benjamin did so. They took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. They went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time. Every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This seems like a broken ending everything is broken it's uglier than it has been throughout the entire book and there's some ugly things in the book it's even worse now and everyone's doing right in their own eyes they're not godly they're not seeking God's counsel there's no godly leaders there's not even a judge on the scene at this point There's not a leader named who's even halfway doing what is right. It's terrible characters, full-scale civil war, great neglect of God, love of God, and love of others. If we just read 23 and 25, we have a book that only tells us about broken people. There's a little phrase at the end of 23 and that's repeated in 24, though, that shows us and reminds us that this is not a book only about broken people, but about the unbroken promises of God. Notice where they went. Let's go back to the end of verse 23. Pop that back on the screen for me. Verse 23, then they went and returned to their inheritance. This is the people of Benjamin going back to their inheritance, what they had inherited, what they had received by God, and they went and lived in them. Look at verse 24. Same phrase in verse 24, that people now, all of Israel, departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. An inheritance is not what you have worked for and earned. It is what has been granted to you. At the end of of a book that is as dark, dismal, and ominous as possible. They depart to what God had promised them. They had not earned their inheritance. And yet God has not wiped them out despite their sin. By the way, at the end of the book of Joshua, we began this series seven weeks ago, looking at the end of the book of Joshua, where all of the people gather together. Joshua says, I'm about to die. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But what about you? And they're like, we're all going to follow Jesus. We're going to walk in step with him, just a closer walk with him. They sing all their spiritual songs of commitment to the Lord. They make all those promises of doing the right things, and they depart to their inheritance. At the end of a pretty good book making promises to obey God, they depart to what God had granted them. At the end of the book of Joshua, I need you to see, despite their disobedience, despite their broken promises, despite their ominous depravity that has pervaded everything, God's promises are still true. God's promises were kept, even though the people of Israel broke every one of theirs. They departed to what God had promised them, not because of how good they were, but because of how great his grace and promise-keeping nature was. Because God was faithful to his own, as the song that we sang earlier says. The only reason they had anything to go to was not because of their goodness, but because of his grace and mercy. They did not deserve their inheritance. They were granted it according to God's mercy and faithful promises given to Abraham. These are promises that God is keeping to bring judgment, yes, upon his people, but to not wipe them out, to give them an inheritance from which a Savior will come who is Christ the Lord, who is faithful to us even when we are faithless to Him, as 2 Timothy 2 says. He is faithful. The book of Judges is dark in its ending. It is not a book of be like the people in Judges. There is not a hero to imitate In Judges 19 through 21, but there is a God to worship who by his own mercy looks upon people like you and I who have broken our promises to follow, to do better, to try harder, to do what he wants, who have rebelled against him and his ways, choosing to do what is right in our own eyes. He has kept his promises through Christ sending us a deliverer that we did not deserve, that we can have an inheritance that we did nothing to earn on our own, but is granted to us by our relationship with Christ. You see, the story of judges ends in one sense as bleak as it could be, but in another sense, when we see that they depart to an inheritance promised by God, it ends incredibly brightly. It should cause us not to imitate the zeros of the book, but to worship God as the grand hero of the story who keeps his promises even when the tempter has prevailed. You see, today we can be tempted and we can fall prey to the cultural idols of our day, the wrong patterns of living, the wrong actions and attitudes. We can repeat the filth of some aspects of this book, calling okay what God doesn't call okay, not treasuring marriage, having hateful acts of vengeance, treating others as property to be viewed or used for our own pleasure. You see, it's a land far away, but it really wasn't that far away. Because the condition of their heart is similar to the condition of our heart, apart from God's grace. You see, the need that they had for a promise keeper who would fulfill his promises despite their broken promises is the same need that we have today. So whether this is about a text in a land, land far, far away, and a people long ago, or whether it's about here and now, it's really both. Because the condition of their hearts is the condition of our heart. And the need that they had for a promise keeper is the same need that we have. They were looking forward to a great deliverer and king. We look back to that great deliverer, Christ our king, who did what was right in the eyes of God, in our place that we can be forgiven and set free. So today, as we end a series on broken we celebrate God's unbroken promises. We do so knowing that the tempter has prevailed in our lives and in the lives of others, but that he holds on to us. That the story of the Bible is not how hard can you hold on to God, it is how strongly does God hold on to his people. This is a story of worship for us in the light and the brightness of God's promises being kept. So let's stand now sing and respond, that he holds fast to his promises and to his people. And I'll be available in the back to talk or pray with you about any way that you need to respond to this.